Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Nikki Parker. Nikki Parker runs Bank Consulting. She's a specialist in understanding the language and the voice of the customer. Today, we're going to look at whether you really understand your customer, whether your executives are actually talking to your customers. Messages of execs being fed from sales, from customer success, what are they missing? How are they helping marketing do their job in terms of uh, pricing, positioning, placement, product, and promotion? What are they doing in order to ensure that they really understand the customer? Well, Nikki, welcome. Thank you. Would you mind giving us a couple of minutes on your history, please, so that people understand your background and what you do at the moment and who you serve? Sure. So I started my working life right back in when I was 15 and I worked in retail in a news agents. And I think that really started my love affair with the customer. And I've always had a love for it ever since. So fast forward quite a few years and I was thrust um, unknowingly into a marketing role when I was an office manager and my MD came trotting in one day and said, we need some sales leads for the customer, for the sales team. Can you help me? Can you just write some sales letters? Well, I've not done anything like that before. Oh, don't worry, you'll figure it out. And I did figure it out. I bought a book, taught myself how to do it, wrote the sales letters. And that was the start. Dan Kennedy, by any chance? Pardon? Was it the gold-covered Dan Kennedy book? No, it was <laughs> right to sell or something like that. Oh, I'll have to look for it. But yeah, then I went to work for another company where marketing was part of my role and they put me through my CIM qualifications. And then I stepped away from marketing for a little while. And then back in 2006, I started Bang. And we were an outsourced marketing agency for many years we looked after SMEs and delivered everything from strategy to execution. And then for the last couple of years, I have focused purely on consultancy, where I work with businesses to ensure that their marketing is fit for purpose. So I work with the chief execs to do that. And a key integral part of that is getting to know the customer, because every time I deliver a review, I tell the board, you don't know the customer as well as you think you do. Let's start with that. How can executives hear the voice of the customer? Two ways. I really think they all should be made to go out and see the customers and talk to the customers, and it frustrates the hell out of me that they don't. But I also think that they could get some interviews in the bag with customers, which they could outsource. What do you mean by interviews? So structured conversations with customers it needs to be on the telephone not email surveys they that you don't get a very good response to email surveys and you only get people who are either utterly thrilled or utterly disgruntled that answer them you don't get the bit in the middle and the bit in the middle is the most important bit actually so if you think about it from an NPS score level anyone that's likely to score a six seven or eight is probably unlikely to fill in an electronic survey about what they think. But if you have a conversation with those people, they will then open up and talk to you. The risk of the middle ones are they're the ones that are most easily tempted to go if something exciting is dangled in front of them. 
Is the net promoter score really a useful barometer? Because it seems to be um, largely made up of people uh, saying what they think that um, the CS people want to hear, rather than giving raw, unvarnished, unbiased feedback, which is what I'm hoping we're going to be talking about. Absolutely, yeah, we are. I mean, I work with someone who who does do NPS scores if you've got a lot of customers that need it. I do think it works, but I think it only works if you then unpick it. So you need to get the score as their first thing that they say, and then you need to constantly unpick why they have given that score and that's the bit I mean you'll always get bizarre people who say well I never give a 10 which I find strange because if you're totally thrilled with something why wouldn't you give them top marks but it is definitely about unpicking why that is but I think that that's true of all of these customer interviews you can't you need to hear what they're really saying because someone will say yeah it's good and you're like is it is that really what you're saying Talk me through the structure of one of these things then. So when I do them, I like to find out why they started working with them in the first place and what was their original problem that they went to them for. Mm -hmm. If it's not many years ago, I might ask them why they chose them in the first place. But then we'll talk about what it is that the customer, the company has done for the customer and what has worked particularly well, what's been disappointing, what, if anything, the company might have done to rectify anything that was disappointing, what the impact has been on them and on the business of working with the company and anything else that they might want to share along the way. And sometimes they're really animated and chatty, or we can make them really animated and chatty. And then all sorts of exciting stuff that you couldn't have written script for comes out of the woodwork. But that sounds to me like it's probably better to have a third party do it than do it yourself. Because there's that wonderful book, The Mom Test, which is uh, all about, you know, if you tell tell your mother what you're doing and uh, ask for her opinion, she says, oh, it's lovely, dear. Um, and you don't want that. You want the you want to go running towards the sound of gunfire. Bad news is good news because you can actually do something. It may tell you that that new product development, actually, it's just a tank uh, and no one wants it. Or you need to develop product in this particular area or else you're going to lose customers. Yeah. And I, I think that's the real power of speaking to people who are unhappy. Yeah. Uh, let's spend a little bit of time around that. What are the other payoffs of talking to people who are unhappy and having the guts to run to the sound of gunfire? Well, first of all, hopefully, if there's some similarities from several stories, you can recognise where the, where the big holes are that you need to fill. So there's definitely that bit. But it could be that they're not aware of other things that you offer in the business that could fix a problem. But I mean, primarily, the biggest win for me is if you talk to someone who is upset and you manage it well, you can very often turn that problem around. You can see what needs to happen to solve the problem and a decent heartfelt apology and rectifying the problem can quite often turn disgruntled customers into raving fans. I mean, the data that I'm recalling is from uh, well over a decade ago, but uh, if I remember rightly, an unhappy customer handled well 
um, will typically not only buy, but upsell themselves uh, around 80% of the time. Yeah, that sounds about right. And there's something about an unhappy one will tell so many versus a happy one will tell so many. But when someone has been upset and they have been turned around, they are very vocal usually, which is why they become raving fans because they tell everyone, oh, this happened and they did this and then I felt like this. Interestingly enough, it's also a very good strategy. If you've got um, someone who is hostile to you when you're trying to make the sale, if you can get the most senior person in the company to enlist both of you to work on a project together that can't fail, the worst that they can do is be neutral. And effectively, it just cuts the legs from under them. Again, the same strategy seems to apply. Okay, let's talk about uh, something you said in the green room caught my attention. Well, let's start with listening. What is listening, real listening? Sometimes it's about what they don't say as well as what they do. So quite often it'll be that they'll start off with a monosyllabic answer and that normally indicates to you that they're not really that happy with something because normally when someone is enthusiastic about something, they'll start chattering away about it. And if they don't say very much, there's usually a, that's usually an indicator that they have more to say and they're not sure whether they want to say it or not. So there's definitely that stuff. And also their choice of words on occasions. You can tell that that's an unusual word to say and therefore, you know, you can unpick that too. Why have you said that? Yeah, it sounded like talking to my teenagers. You uh, talk to them and then they're monosyllabic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, maybe not quite so keen to open up and tell you more, but. <laughs> so if we think about listening, I think I, I the way I like to define listening, real listening, is it's the transfer of emotion. It's not just the meaning that anyone can hear, but it's the emotion attached to it. It's real empathy. And I, I think that's a skill that has definitely been not cultivated in uh, younger generations as well. I think digital natives struggle with that. Analog natives, we struggle with technology. And I think uh, we need to find a bridge between the two. There's a wonderful company called Authentics over in the States that does about 10 billion calls a year in the American healthcare sector. I mean, it's a vast number that they uh, record. They're tracking all of these and they're listening to the voice of the customer. And what's really fascinating is when you listen to the customer, they tell you some really, really interesting things. In their case, they found that uh, with one insurer, uh, and actually this was a pattern repeated across many of them, 24% of their sales agent's time was taken up with inquiries from inbound because people couldn't navigate the website. And it was simply helping people find the thing that they wanted so they could buy it online. Now, that's a quarter of the sales force tied up with that. Then you've got all these different ripple effects where there's this lack of connectivity or um, it, um, um, uni unity uh, and alignment between marketing, sales, customer success, product. And the customer's voice tells you all of this stuff. But I think we struggle because uh, so many people are hanging on to their fiefdom. You know, they're empire building and they want to protect what they're doing and it's familiar. How does uh, how do the customer interviews help break those barriers internally 
so that people start rallying around the central theme, which is, you know, serving the customer. Some of it is around the language that the customer uses. So that helps to drive stuff like marketing content. But it's also about getting the customer to talk about what they're using your product or service for, why they've bought it. And and then when somebody has this brilliant idea, you can say, but that's not what the customer wants or that is not how the customer uses our product and service. So we either need to realign or we need to think about what else we can do to deliver even more joy for the customer from that perspective. Rather than going off on that direction, because that's what we've decided to do, we need to go where the customer is telling us to go. And again, hubris is a real issue here. I remember in one of the interviews on the podcast that uh, they'd been mentoring someone in CS. And They'd done the data or run the data. They'd spoken to the customers and the information came back that this product that you've just spent 200 million launching is going to tank or you're about to spend 200 million launching. And the CEO said, no, I'm going to ignore the data. I'm going to make a captain's call. And they lost 400 million. Yeah, there's a story years ago about Levi jeans and Levi for whatever reason, decided they wanted to go into making suits. And they asked the customers, and the customers are all like, no, that's not what we would buy from Levi. But the they decided to go ahead and do it anyway. It tanked. I should have listened to the customer. If you don't listen to your customer, you're basically pulling a pin and swallowing the grenade. So tell me this then. If you're going to do these interviews, how do you tee it up? Because it's obviously going to be a... Um, uh, an interesting conversation, especially if you're going back to customers who fired you or who are unhappy. How do you set that up so that you end up getting the information that you need and with any luck, building some bridges again and leaving the path open to maybe doing business again in the future or now? First of all, you kind of need to prep them and say that you you're, you have asked someone to reach out and make contact with them and you genuinely want to know how they feel and you accept the fact that you know not all customers love you and you're this is an exercise in learning what improvements the business need to make so I think that's the first thing so you've set the scene so that the customer doesn't wonder who this strange individual is who's who's contacted them But then other than that, in my opinion, I think you need to leave the person doing the calls to get on and do the calls rather than to intervene. So there might be an agreed plan if there's anything very specific that you want to find out. But I think the more open you're able to make it, the more effective it is and let the customer lead the call. So when I'm doing it, I do have questions that I tend to ask but I'm very happy to be led by the customer. So if the customer is very chatty and wants to talk for ages about their experience of a certain element, then I'm quite happy to let them crack on and do that because they're in a flow. But for me, it's really important that we just capture all the stuff that they want to share, even the stuff they might be reluctant to share to start with. From the business's perspective, you know, there is only any point in doing this if you're going to take 
what the customer says and do something with it. If you're not, then there is absolutely no point in doing this at all because you have, you've asked your customers to waste their time for you to do nothing. So it's really important at the end of the exercise that the company writes to say thank you very, very much and maybe gives you a, gives a quick potted history of we've learned this, this and this, and we will be back in touch. What I really like to see is when they do in three, four, six, whatever it is, months' time, right back and go. You remember we did these customer interviews. As a result of that, we have changed this, we have done this, we have introduced this, so that there is, you've closed the circle, as it were, so that the customer's like, great, I felt feel like I was part of that and I was listened to. So that's always a good thing. And in a B2B context, this is where your quarterly satisfaction reviews with your customer come in but they're not meant to be you pitching stuff no. this is you getting feedback and learning and learning from what uh, they tell you uh, so that you can report back what you did in the intervening three months if you haven't already reported mm -hmm. so that they can see the progress because this is all part of a retention strategy you've got to remember in this market, you're going to have to keep your customers. Selling and running, doing drive-by shootings is no longer acceptable. I mean, it never was, but now it's more important than ever that we stay in touch with our customers and we've got to be relevant. But one of the most powerful ways that you can be relevant is to feed off the customer's in insight and help them achieve better engagement, better alignment with the customer. Totally. Totally. Okay. So... If we think about the customer interview itself, it's, it's obviously a sensitive conversation that you're trying to have. How do you make sure that you're not getting sucked in to the emotion? And how, how do you stay detached? I think if the customer is very upset because something has gone wrong, it is hard not, not to be drawn into it. And, and actually, because I have a huge passion for delivering a great customer experience, it does make me passionate and it makes me frustrated when it's wrong. But I think I tend to think about what could they have done or should they have done or what do they need to do now to rectify this. So that is usually what's going through my head. Sometimes I might test the water to say, if, if they were able to rectify this or if they were able to um, put something in place to make sure that didn't happen again, how would you feel about it? So that we're testing the water a little bit about is, is this a problem we can turn around or not? And if the customer has made it super clear, you know, I'm done now, it's irretrievable, I think you just need to let them get it off their chest because that will make them feel better, even if they don't realise it at that moment in time, and ensure that you really genuinely sound empathetic. I had the very self-same thing this week. Somebody called me, asked if it was okay to talk to me. I said, well, I'm in the car, but fill your boots. I'm stuck here, so carry on. And he went off about, your when you cancel your membership, you're going to miss all these benefits. And I said, but I don't use any of those benefits. Oh. And I've already told your colleague this, but what I'm really disappointed about is why you haven't asked me why I've cancelled my membership. Oh, right. Well, why have you? Because you, you aren't providing what I want, which is this. Oh, OK, then. That's literally what he said. Oh, OK, then. Like, 
I don't care. I don't give a monkey's about that. Mm-hmm. And then started to read from a script to me. And he just made me so exasperated. I wanted to put the phone down. And I'm like, it didn't need to be like that. It could have been so much better. But they just, when you're offboarding somebody and they're cancelling or pulling away, it's, you know, that could be done so much better. That whole process of managing helping the customers to transition to where they want to go actually could make them think, hold on a moment, they're being really, really helpful about this. I'm walking away from them. Okay, so let's talk about offboarding because it's going to be happening an awful lot that customers are going to be leaving, they're going to be cutting back on contracts. Let's define what offboarding is, first of all, and look at what happens when we don't do a good job. So for me, offboarding is when the customer walks away. Now, that might be for something very genuine, like let's say they had a website built. You've built the website, the project's done. So that's, that's in the customer's mind, that's it. You've built me a website. I'm, I'm off now, thanks. Or it could be, I've had enough of you. You've done a bad job. I need to go and find somebody else who will do it better, cheaper, whatever kind of thing. But the offboarding is that process of managing, helping the customer to step away. And that could be providing them with all the information that they need to take to a new provider, login details or whatever for their account to make sure that they can access it, make sure they've done stuff like cancelled direct debits or standing orders, that they've paid their final bill, which can all be done in a very pleasant way. Make sure that they have any information that they need to take to their new supplier. And also quite nice to have a reminder you know, today's your last day or tomorrow's your last day. Don't forget to whatever, whatever that they might need to do in order to transition across. But what would be a good thing to do is in the window between them announcing they're going and physically leaving the premises, as it were, if you can get them to agree to have a conversation to say, look, thank you for supporting us. We're sorry you're you're leaving we'd like to capture a bit more about that so that we can make sure that we do a better job so it's not you're not telling them we're trying to win you back you're telling them we want to hear what we could do better and sometimes you might be able to win them back sometimes you might not but again you're going to start to see some themes if a number of people are telling you the same thing well then hold on a moment then maybe there's a process that needs changing in the business so how many would you recommend how many customer interviews would you recommend someone does to get a realistic coverage You really need at least 20 to 30 to get a decent viewpoint but let's be honest about it if you've done 10 and eight of them are telling you the same thing you're already thinking hold on unless you unless there are kept, there are customers who are in very different segments so you know if you're if you're asking enterprise size customers and smes then you know there may be different challenges in the in the two different sizes of business there may not be it depends what it is but there could be so you might find there are themes in one sector that there isn't in another for example depending on who your customers are okay so we're in front of the customer they're opening up What are the clues that we need to observe 
in terms of non-verbals? Because I think a lot of communication, I mean, the vast, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90% of it often is non-verbal. And often it's, as you said, in what's not being said, in the pregnant pause, the hesitation is just a little bit, seems staged. What's going on? What do you have to do to be a really good observer in these interviews? I think you're always looking for them. I mean, these days I tend to do them on um, Zoom. So the upside of that is that you can see them um, and you can tell that they're engaged in the conversation, obviously, if they're looking at you. So if they're on their phone all the time, you can tell they're not really engaged in it. And that in itself is a conversation to be had. Either are we not doing this at a good time for you? Is this something you need to do? Would you rather we re we remade the appointment? Or it could be, I know that you're not really passionate about this and I want to know why you're not passionate because they've obviously done something wrong and I really, I really want to get that out of you. And I don't mind what you say. It doesn't matter how bad it is. I just want you to tell me everything warts and all. Often I will offer them the opportunity to do it in confidence. So if there's something that they want to say but they don't really want to be quoted, that's okay. For me, I can still go back and say, here are the themes or here are some very important messages you need to hear. The customer doesn't want to be named, but this happened and that's not okay. And you need to deal with that. Because so often when a customer leaves, we've got no idea why really. I mean, in fairness, I think a lot of salespeople have no idea why they bought in the first place either. Yeah, and there is sometimes that is the case when you do offboard someone, there is an element of, well, what I got wasn't what I thought I bought. So there's an element of that, which is in itself is a problem. Well, if if you hear that, that is a big red flag because it means your salespeople are selling to the wrong people and they shouldn't be selling to them. And your marketing is attracting them. Mm. Okay, so we're involved in the interview. We're looking for the nonverbals. We're paying attention. We're trying to establish the emotion that the uh, the other person is expressing. Sometimes I imagine these conversations can get a little bit heated if they're really not happy or they've been let down. How do you manage the conflict constructively? I think it's a lot easier because it isn't about me. It's not my company. It's my client's company. So I don't take it personally because it isn't. It's it's not directed at me. And as I say, sometimes when they're frustrated, it is much easier just to let them talk until they've talked themselves out, really. Dare I say, a little bit like when the child has the tantrum, just finish having your tantrum and then we'll talk reasonably. It's not the same thing here, but it is about, oh, I'm just so annoyed. I just need to tell you everything about why I'm so annoyed. And actually, Sometimes when they vent and they're like, and then this and then this, all sorts of stuff might come out that they haven't even realised themselves until they they started. So actually some real golden nuggets very often come out of that, oh, I'm just so annoyed moment. <laughs> but then at the end of it, you I think very often I'm I you can tell, is it super bad? Is there absolutely no recovery? In which case, obviously, the appropriate thing to say is that you're really, really sorry that they've had that experience and that you hope that wherever they've chosen to go to next is better. But there are other times when you, I want to say to them and, and do, listen, 
that's not great. And I'm sure that that isn't what they would like you to be left with. Is there any way we can retrieve this? Is there any way that X, Y, Z can do something by way of apology for this or to prove to you that that's not how they normally operate? And you've got to let them make the decision on that. I still think it's really important that the company should try to do something, but equally you have to let the customer lead that one. So if they're not, if they're not, if it's irretrievable, I don't think there is any point in pushing the customer to do something they don't want to do. Well, again, the idea of pushing a customer to do something they don't want to do is inherent within a lot of sales cultures trying to get customers to buy prematurely stuff that they probably shouldn't be buying and so on and what flabbergasts me is how cheaply most salespeople will sell their reputation it's heartrending to think that people just in order to get their boss off their back for you know today uh, or to get the deal over the line or to get to president's club this quarter they're willing to sacrifice their ethics they're willing to sacrifice their reputation baffles me yes i agree and um marketing has their part to play in that too i think there's this constant obsession that marketing's job is lead generation that is not marketing's job at all marketing's job is to develop a relationship with the customer and if you're doing a good job of doing that then when the when the point is right, it will be sufficiently qualified for sales to pick up the baton and do the thing that they do best. But I think that in the quest for constant growth, which is what happens at board level, they become obsessive with, well, marketing's not doing a job, good job because they're not generating enough leads. Marketing, what the hell are you doing with all this budget we're giving you? what's happening and then marketing produced a set of ridiculous statistics that really mean a great deal of nothing like how many impressions a poster's got which is the modern day equivalent of and you will get this as much as I do Marcus in the old days print no you and I are the same age that's okay in the days of print, when you would set when they would quote circulation figures and reach <laughs> And the reshift figures would be about four times the size of the circulation figures. And you'd say, where did you come from that figure? And they go, well, we know each paper is read four times. Well, that's absolute nonsense. But impressions is the same, is the the modern day equivalent of the same thing. Impressions, what does that mean, for goodness sake? It's smoke and mirrors. And it's trash. You know, the the, the whole idea that uh, we care about click-throughs. No one cares about click-throughs apart from the marketing department because they're measured on it. Uh, it doesn't add value to the business, a click-through in, in and of itself. We're trying to generate revenue from those ads. And I, I really like the idea that marketing is about everything that touches the customer. It's about the relationship with them. It's uh, our logo. It's how they're received. It's the experience they have. It's the service. It's the whole thing. That's marketing. And sales is a subset of marketing, which I know is an unpopular view. But it is. And we, we all need to serve the customer's outcome. And I think we've, uh, we seem to have lost sight of that. And as a result, we're missing out on vast opportunity. I mean, the number of times you see people um, cannibalizing a product and using it in ways that were never intended 
But that tells you there's a whole market that there is no competition crying out for that product. And all you have to do is package it slightly differently and you know, maybe put a different color on it. And all of a sudden, you've got a monopoly. Yeah, there's a marvelous story about a company that produces a pregnancy test. And they recognize that there are two very distinctly different markets for that. There is the I want to get pregnant, I want to be a mum category, and there is the absolutely do not want to get pregnant, thank you very much category. And so they repackaged it for the two different markets. And the second category, they put in the same aisle as the contraception. So happy days, sales went up, same product, different packaging, and that was the way to do it. But that was all about understanding the customer. Lots of this is really about nuance, and it doesn't cost a lot. The the beauty is, if you actually listen to your customer, you can drive your marketing costs down. You can drive down your cost of sale. You can drive up profitability. You can drive up customer lifetime value. What baffles me is that people don't do this more often. The truly customer-centric businesses are the ones who do well. And even when times are tough, like the times we're going through now, they still come out better as a result of it. And they're all, you know, the big ones are the ones we all know, the Four Seasons, Disney, Apple. They're all known for being very customer-centric. And interestingly enough, their technology is designed around the customer. If you look at Disney's tech stack, it's heavily built around the experience in the results. Um, Anytime, you know, they know who you are they know what your preferences are. If you've been before, they know what you went on, all of that sort of stuff, because they want to try and recapture the joy of the experience. And you know, having an, an eight-foot rat turn up to your kids and make them scream while the parents are happy, you need to make sure that the entire experience is seamless. Mm. And that's hard. I mean, it's my idea of hell, but they do a really good job. Because when I went to the park, it was amazing how efficient it was. Yeah. Okay, so in the time that we've got left, let's dig a bit more into power of really understanding your customer. If we think as the customer, in fact, let's take a step back. If you're exhorting people to think as the customer instead of just about them, what advice would you give in terms of alignment within your own organization? Well, apart from uh, I'd like to make it a commitment that everybody in the board, on the board goes out and sees the customer, which I think would be yeah. a really important thing for them to do. I think that they need to regularly talk to the customers, and that ought to be a combination of doing different things. You know, go and spend a day in the life of the customer and walk the customer's walk so that you see all the challenges that they are experiencing. So for some of your customers, that's going to be possible. That's a good thing to do. Make sure that you're regularly doing surveys of your customers. Bring in focus groups. Bring groups of customers together. Get them to talk to each other and facilitate that conversation. Who knows? You might be able to give them networking opportunities, which is a nice thing to do. But it's also when you're part of those conversations and you hear them talking to each other, you'll hear about what their perceptions are of your business. So that's a great thing to do. But it is about 
hearing the language of the customer, how how they describe what you do, how they describe the impact of of what you offer on them and their business. And that should help you to look for more customers that are like them because you'll be able to use that language in your sales and marketing. I think it's really important to be careful of a couple of the blind spots. One of them is, I think, not recognizing the soft needs. I think there's a tendency very often to focus on the business needs, the ROI, all that kind of stuff. There seems to be an over-reliance on the quantitative data rather than the qualitative conversations. And the real gold is in the conversation. It's not necessarily in the data because you can look at the data and analyze it in many different ways. And depending on your sources, how reliable it is, if it's from your CRM, probably about 80% of it's wrong or inaccurate or incomplete. And I think the other big danger is listening to the most vocal customers. Yes. Anything else to add? What often comes out of conversations that I have is that if they are happy, I can get them to write a testimonial, which normally means I write the testimonial, send it to them, and they either approve it or they use it as their starting point to adjust. So that's something quite nice that has come out of it for a number of my clients that they get a decent testimonial out of it as well, because we all know that when you ask someone to write you a testimonial and they're faced with a blank sheet of paper, they don't really know what to write. So that's quite a nice add-on. It isn't the main purpose for doing it, but it is a nice thing to do. But I do really, really think that understanding what makes the customer tick and what they value and what they don't value will help everything in the organization. And it certainly means that and it should improve the lives of your staff, particularly those who are customer facing. Because let's be honest about it, staff morale is better when customers are happy. When customers are miserable and cross and angry and agitated, it isn't doesn't make for a great working day when you're on the phone to people that are moaning all the time. Well, again, I think part of this is that almost no organization ever spends any time trying to understand the buyer's journey and understanding those struggling moments along the journey where there are really good opportunities to touch the customer in a beneficial and insightful way that's timely, doesn't feel like an interruption and uh, warms them up. So when you are ready to sell to them and they're ready to buy, they're not seeing you as a pain in the neck. pests phoning me all the time but there's also everyone talks about the buyer journey but I think there is also a customer journey to be had too so once they've signed to say yes mapping out what a journey of a customer looks like on and how that how that works for them during the process of whatever it is they've bought from you and understanding where the trigger points might be and therefore what marketing support and sales or customer service support um, might be needed or any other department for that matter along the way would also help. And that is something that companies don't do very often at all. This is where you will get um, instant financial savings if you speak to your customer and you specifically ask them about the communication that they receive. Because chances are, 
sales, marketing, and CS are all targeting people, many of whom are receiving communications from two or more of those departments. And they shouldn't be. The number of times I've heard, and uh, again, very, very, very large trillion-dollar software companies, that leaves only one. And these people are really well teched up, so they should know better. And they're contacting partners, trying to sell them onto the partner program. I mean, seriously, what kind of message does that send? Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. This is a business that's a trillion dollars. And they're making these mistakes. So chances are it's happening in almost every other organization along the way. And the, the other thing that strikes me is that the amount of opportunity that is being missed because they're spending money attracting the wrong customers and they're not targeting the non-customers who could be customers. And they're just not recognizing that because they're set in their ways. So I think one of the big things here is having externals come in and challenge their marketing thinking. I mean, even if you have a marketing department, it's probably a good idea to get some externals to come in and challenge, isn't it? Well, I think so. Perhaps I'm a bit biased on that. But I think that it isn't always about finding where someone is tripping up. Sometimes it is to say, actually, you are doing a good job on that. So keep going with that. But that, that's quite good. But have you thought about it like this? And if you did it like this, what would the outcome look like? So nobody knows all the answers to everything. So to get some external validation and challenge why not? And if you add that to bringing the customer voice in and saying, but this is what your customer is telling you, it's really hard to defend then because actually if the customer says that, then it doesn't really matter what we think. Okay, so let's end on a difficult conversation. Should marketing be responsible for all of this or should there be a function that is the champion of the customer that is responsible for marketing, for sales, for CS. And I know that we're going to say that marketing should be doing it all, but it clearly isn't because they've become data monkeys to a large extent. I still think it is marketing's job. That's what I was taught right back when, that it is marketing's job to be the customer voice and champion the customer. Does it work if it's another department? Sure. I mean, you... You know, you could have the chief customer officer, I guess, on the board, but you just need to make sure that whoever that person is, how are the, how will they be uh, confident of being heard? Right. Okay. And that's where I think I was really trying to get to. So thank you for pulling me out. I think the problem is that to a large extent, marketing lacks credibility with finance and they don't speak the language of finance. They don't speak the language of the board. And so when they come with stuff, which might be brilliant, it falls on fallow ground or barren ground. That is true. But that is about an education thing. So really, you need your chief execs buy in. There is no doubt about that. The chief exec needs to buy into this and support this because it is an education thing, which is you should not be measuring us on how many leads we have spuriously or not spuriously generated from some random place, you should be measuring us on the confidence with which we come into the boardroom and say, this is what our customers are telling us about this product or this service. And this is 
what they're not if we've looked most of our customers are not buying xyz we need to find out why they're not buying that thing and that isn't going to sales and just hearing what sales have got to say it's a bigger job than well sales team you've just got to get on and sell that Again, I think this is a lack of alignment around the job to be done. Everyone thinks they're doing a good job, doing what they're doing, but they're not aligned around the customer. And if the job to be done is to serve something other than the customer's outcome, then chances are the customer is going to have a poor experience. Yeah, but it does go across the whole organization. So when I did some surveys recently, one of the things that came out was actually nothing about marketing, it was about finance, that credit control wasn't managed particularly well, and it didn't talk to the system properly, so that when the customer had paid their bill, it took a week to update the system. So when the customer went in to buy something, they were told in front of everybody else, you can't buy that thing because you haven't paid your bill. No, I have. I paid it three days ago. Well, it's not showing on the system. We can imagine the joy that that gave. So that wouldn't wouldn't be going back there in a hurry. (laughs) Quite. Well, I was was like, fix this. This is a major issue. Right. Did they listen? Yes. And the impact? I don't know because they haven't fed back to me the impact, but let's be honest about it. It it can't have had anything but a positive impact. How can (laughs) you not have? A positive impact. That's dire, isn't it? It's awful. Okay, so Nikki, we've come to time. Tell me, you've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot 23-year-old who was invincible and immortal. What would you tell her that she'd have undoubtedly ignored? (laughs) That I should have started my marketing career a lot earlier than I did is the honest answer to that question. Okay, and what one bit of advice would you give her today based on your knowledge about the customer not everyone is going to agree with this but for me it is that the customer is always right i'm going to disagree with you but i'm going to agree agree in part which is the customer is often wrong but when they are wrong it's normally our fault yes and it's our job to try and find the end the common ground and i think this is where we go wrong in sales because we try to win And we talk about win-win, but we don't really mean it. A win-win means that neither side would want to change a single thing given the same circumstances again. So not one term, not one word. Now, to do that requires patience. It requires skill. And it requires real empathy, which most people don't have because they're in a hurry. So I think the conclusion I'm reaching is that we absolutely need to slow down. We need to try to... Um, grow less and in slowing down and trying to grow less we will grow faster I mean that's a fair conclusion yes okie cokey can you recommend any good books around this subject of customer Mm. interviews I'd recommend the mom test it's a very interesting read and it allows you to create your own framework for asking these questions but I would caveat that getting someone external to do it, really very important because you want the raw unvarnished truth so that they're not glossing it over and putting lipstick on the pig. There's quite an interesting book about creating content from customers, which is They Ask, Answer. Yes. 
But don't I, buy the audio version is the only thing I would say, because he says they ask you, we answer almost every 10 seconds. And if you play it on triple speed, it's about every three seconds. So you will go mad. <laughs> the book itself, good content, but don't buy the audio version. Okay. There, there is another one, which is something like 10 Steps to Customer Success, but I'll have to find it to tell you the exact title. Excellent. Okay. Well, Nikki, how can people get a hold of you? My website, bankconsulting.co.uk. Lovely. And you're on LinkedIn as well, I guess. I am. Yes. Excellent. So, Nikki, thank you very much. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do get in touch with Nikki. If you're having your customers leave you, or you're afraid that they're going to leave you, or you've had customers who have left you and you think you might be able to win them back, win back campaigns are absolutely diamond uh, if you're doing these customer interviews. I'll give you a great example of it. Inc. Magazine recently did one, and uh, they were trying to get their subscribers to subscribe again. And what they found was, through the customer interviews, the customers who didn't subscribe were interested in short, quick, uh, short articles with two or three quick wins that they could hack. The ones who subscribed wanted long articles with five or so interesting challenges for them to go away and work on. And their subscriptions went through the roof. I think it was an 80% uplift in subscriptions, if I remember rightly. Now, go and speak to your customers. Definitely. So on that happy note, that's me signing off. If you are struggling, if you're having a bit of a time trying to get deals over the line, they're ghosting you or they're stuck in the middle, there's a link in the blurb to the new sales aptitude test. If you complete that, I'll give you half an hour of my time as a consult to analyze what it means for you and how quickly you can turn things around. Yes, I will try and sell you some consulting. No, I won't put you under any pressure. So in the meantime, over to you. Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.